We're going to be in Luke chapter 3 this morning, Luke chapter 3, and our plan is to make it down through verse 9, and we will mention verses 10 and 11, but we'll spend most of our time through verse 9, and then next week we'll come back and go down to the end of verse 22. That's the plan. Today we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. I've mentioned John the Baptist a couple of times already. Luke focuses on the birth narratives in the early chapters of Luke's gospel, both on the birth of John the Baptist, who was the prophet, the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah. And then he, of course, focuses on the birth of Christ as well. So you really had two miraculous births. You had John the Baptist. His mom was said to be old and barren. She was past the age of having children. And this was more than just a mid-40s surprise. This was an older lady who has a baby that's not supposed to be having babies, biologically. And But here's John, John the Baptizer, as he's later called, partly because of what we'll look at today. His name on his birth certificate was not John the Baptist, or Baptist as a middle name, although, you know, maybe some of our Baptist friends try to trace their roots back to there. You never know. That's not his name, though. He becomes called John the Baptizer, and that distinguishes him from John the Gospel writer, John the Evangelist, and John the Baptizer. So he had a miraculous story coming up, but we haven't heard from him in a while. And just like with the story of Jesus, you have this period. You have the infancy narratives where you learn a little bit about his birth. We have this one snapshot of the life of Jesus, and then we begin Jesus' ministry. Well, John, we just jump straight to his ministry. So it's many years later. John is a grown man at this point, and we're jumping into his story. And there's really not a lot of information. It's important information, but there's not a lot that we're told about John the Baptist. Other gospel writers, we can take different pieces that they give us, and we can sort of fill in the story and have a little bit more full picture of who John was. Today, we'll focus mainly on Luke and reference just a couple of other places where he said significant things um, in the other gospels. So we'll spend this week and next week talking about John the Baptist, and then we're going to look at the coming of Christ. And it's interesting because Luke backs up and gives a genealogy at that point. Where did the Christ, the Messiah, come from? And that'll be a fascinating study. And then we're off and running with the ministry of Jesus itself. So Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. You know, people who follow the Lord both have been both in the world and of the world. We use this phrase adopted from the words of Christ. We are in the world and we are of the world, but we're not supposed to be like the world. And so we distance ourselves from the world. And you might think if you just ask the question, what is someone who is preparing the way for the Christ, the Messiah, what kind of life would they have? And you might imagine, if you didn't know anything about the biblical story, well, the one who's preparing the way for the Lord, the Christ, they would have it pretty good, right? I mean, they're doing a good thing. They're paving the way for Christ to come into the world. But we know, of course, that that was not the situation with John. And it's really not going to be the situation with Christians in our society and in our world today. And it's never, ever been that way. Christianity has always been a culturally challenging message. This isn't a new invention of the last 20 years, as I think I hear some people talk today. It's as if Christians are having the first bit of trouble that we've ever had. That's really not the story. It's not the story at all. In fact, a couple of things that Jesus said. Matthew 5 and verse 12, he's giving the famous Sermon on the Mount sermon, the Beatitudes. At the end of that, he says, rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward is great in heaven. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, when they revile you. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. And then he ties them back to history, and this is what's interesting to me. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hey, you're just joining a long line. It's kind of always been this way. Peter, of course, taught by Christ, picks up on the same theme. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, he's talking about suffering as a Christian. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. This isn't unusual. This isn't strange for Christians to be in the sights of those who don't love Christ. Jesus said, if you, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. This is how it works. It's just how it works. Keep that in the back of your mind as we read the Gospel of Luke and really the New Testament and the Bible in general. So we move now into the story of John the Baptist, and we're going to see a confrontation that he has with those who are coming to take use of his services, to be baptized by him. But this baptism story doesn't end exactly like our baptism stories ended here today. And I want you to just imagine, try to put yourself in the sandals of those who are living in the first century. Let's read. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Tronconidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of, the, of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I'll go ahead and read down through 14 so you get the full context of what's happening here. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics or coats, is to share them with one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." So this baptism story doesn't go exactly, maybe, as some would have planned it. Just imagine there's a group of people. John's out there. He's in the wilderness. He's baptizing. A group comes up and says, hey, we want to be baptized too. And he says, you bunch of snakes, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? The, tr- the, the ax is at the root of the tree. You're about to get cut down. Well, that's kind of countercultural, isn't it? He tells us early on that this is a message of repentance. 
Repentance. I'll give you a definition of repentance. This was from my, one of my professors in college, Dr. Yance. Uh, Dr. Yance was my favorite professor in my college days. He died in 2020. It was very sad. There was a text I heard from people I haven't heard from in a while. He had such an influence on so many of us. Dr. Yance defined repentance in this way, and I think it's helpful and useful. Repentance is simply this. It's a change in attitude that leads to a change in behavior. A change in attitude, a change in the way that you think, a heart value system, you could say, and it leads to a change in behavior. That's the message John is going to preach. It's a message of repentance. Before we get to that, I want to make just a couple of historical notes here. We're not going to take too much time taking apart all of these names. That's a pretty interesting study in its own right. And I just want to say that the fact that these names are here says something about the historicity of the Bible. And so we have people that would read the Bible today and say that there's no actual historical correspondence. And just the fact that there's some debate around some of these names and exactly who they were, when they lived, where they ruled, that sort of thing, where they crossed over, why one is included and not another, well, it actually speaks to the historicity itself. They're actually bouncing off of history, and you are meant to read it in this way. So this isn't just a legend. This is history, and most people would recognize that even today, that don't believe in Jesus, that this is historical document. So he lists these number of rulers, and then he says something very interesting here in verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, these first set of rulers he's talking about, these are Roman rulers, and you'll remember that Israel at this time, they're in the land, which is very, very important to Israel. If you've read or familiar a little bit with the Old Testament, you know that this geography, this piece of real estate is very important to Israel. So they're in the land, but they're occupied by the Romans. They have this force, this army. And so they have this sort of dual system of government, and this is not a perfect illustration, so for those history buffs and biblical scholars amongst us. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's a little bit like federal state kind of thing, maybe. There's a higher and there's a lower form of government, and there's certain things that the Jews are responsible for. They have their own courts, and then there's certain things that the Romans are responsible for. And so you have this system of government. Well, he starts out talking about the Romans, the Roman rulers. And if you were doing the Time Magazine Person of the Year for, you know, the early centuries here in the 20s, 30s AD, you probably would have picked one of these guys. These are the world rulers. These are the movers and shakers. These are the guys making it happen. But in reality, we could have probably picked John the Baptist, the baptizer, as we look back over history and we get some clarity. And then, of course, Jesus, his influence is just absolutely profound, even from a secular perspective. His influence is incredible and profound. So that's the historical information. So the Roman rulers, and then he goes on to speak of the Jewish rulers. But these Jewish rulers, there's something interesting happening here. If you're an astute reader, you may have noticed he says the high priest, and then he lists two people. Now, what's the problem with that class? There's only one high priest, right? So what's going on here? Different people have posited different ideas. So one thing to note is that these guys these guys were not exactly the people that the Jews thought should be in these positions. The Romans were appointing basically political pawns at that time to lead underneath them. And so remember, dual form of government, you have the Romans and you have the Jews. So in fact, 
Annas was high priest first from 6 AD to 15 AD, and then Caiaphas came after him until 37 AD. But it's most likely just this, uh, sort of like we keep the honorary title of Mr. President for someone who's no longer the sitting president. It's most likely that, that they're both considered the high priest, although one is only currently active, actively the high priest. So that's probably what's going on there. With that, we get into the heart of the message that came to John. John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah. He came and he preached a message of repentance. Now, I want to break this down in uh, two points today. Today is Stephen Nan Gregory's last Sunday with us. Stephen Nan, raise your hand just for a second. They didn't know I was going to point them out. I just wanted to anyways. They're going to be moving back to uh, Asheville, North Carolina. We're going to miss them greatly. The reason I bring that up now is Steve has pastoral experience as well, and he's always getting on me because I don't alliterate my points. So Steve, this is for you, dedicating my outline to you. I pulled it off for you today. Doesn't always work, but here we are. The prophet of repentance, preaching repentance and then practicing repentance. You'll notice here that the word of God came to him. John the Baptist is considered the last of the prophets of his type, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And it says the word of God came to him and he begins this ministry. This is, we don't have a ton of information on his childhood, as I mentioned, so this is really the first public appearance of John the Baptist. This was common back in uh, Jeremiah 20 and verse 9, with the prophets at least. Jeremiah said, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary withholding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah sort of captures the essence of what I think a lot of preachers feel, and John the Baptist, I'm sure, felt this to the nth degree. As one who stands up and teaches most weeks, there is something about getting ready, preparing a lesson. Some of you equipping our teachers can attest to this, and you got something on your notes in front of you, and somebody's got to hear it, all right? Like, once you get this thing primed and ready, is coming, like somebody. A couple of years ago, I was scheduled to go to Haiti, and I was supposed to do pastoral training there, and it was, a, it was a multi-day. I had a number of hours of material that I had prepared. Well, there's unrest in the country and all sorts of problems. We canceled the trip, and it was literally the day before. So I got all these notes, and I'm like, all right, family, gather up. It's family Devo time. And 30 hours of you know, pastoral leadership in the context of the local church. I'm just, I know y'all are going to love it. I didn't actually do that to my kids and family. But I just remember this feeling of, I got something on my mind and heart here, and it's just got to come out. And God, at different points in time, he gets his prophets, he gives them his word, and you just, he just couldn't not say it. It had to come out. The word of God came to him, and he's got to let it out, just like Jeremiah. So what is this word that God had given him? It's a preaching of repentance, Preaching of repentance. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan. He sort of had this itinerant ministry traversing around the Jordan River, which sort of cuts straight to the middle of Israel, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John begins to preach, and he begins to preach a story of repentance. John did not do, would not have done very well. Some of us, maybe, depending on your age and church experience in life, you could have grown up with what was called the seeker-sensitive church movement. Um, Seeker-sensitive meaning that we want to be sensitive to those who are seeking religion, seeking God. And that could be taken to extremes. You know, some people just meant that in the sense it's okay to have visitor parking and, like, you know, for have your coffee is actually warm and not cold. You know, just be basic hospitality. We try to practice that. So if that's what you mean by that, then I'm, I'm fine with that. But some people took this to an extreme to say, we want to actually remove the offense of the cross. We want to move, remove any barrier to the gospel. And so what we want to do is we just want to sort of get people in, get them comfortable, and then sort of slide in that news about repentance and sin and forgiveness. We want to slide that in a little bit later. John wouldn't have done very well in those classes, and he wouldn't have done very well in that type of church. He was actually pretty confrontational. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. Baptism was practiced in the day, and if you wanted to proselytize into Judaism, you would go and be baptized. But that's not exactly what John seems to be doing. John's calling on people to repent and demonstrate that by identifying yourself through baptism with this new way of life. And his message is a message of repentance, preaching of repentance. I want to look at this a little bit more, this preaching of repentance, and I'll point out three potential problems that people could fall into when we talk about repentance and preaching of repentance for sin. Remember, repentance is a change of attitude that leads to a change of behavior. We're talking about confronting hard attitudes, hard idols, and it leads to a difference in the way that you live. Three problems. One is ignoring repentance altogether, sort of like I just mentioned. Let's just remove the offense of the cross. Let's just don't talk about sin. It makes people uncomfortable, so let's just ignore it altogether. Next, moving sort of a step away from that, but still in the same vein, de-emphasizing repentance. There was a movement not that long ago, perhaps still in operation somewhat, that some labeled the hyper-grace movement, um, I don't love that name because it doesn't seem like you should be able to overemphasize grace, but it is the name it kind of trafficked under. So there's such an emphasis on grace, 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 grace that you never actually call anything sin and you never actually call on people to obey the Lord. I think that's a mistake as well. And so then lastly, we could talk about confusing repentance and perfectionism. Two things here. One would be to set the bar so high that people feel like if I ever sin once in my life, I can't be a Christian. That is an overemphasis, and it's really out of balance, and we need to recognize, even in our testimonies here this morning, I appreciated that both Zach and Christina both noted, the Lord has made me new, and yet I'm not perfect, and I appreciate that, and that's where we are as a church. That's what we understand the Bible to teach. So we don't want to overemphasize And then there's an extreme form of that called perfectionism. And this is an actual teaching that some taught, uh, 1700s, 1800s, that people could actually come to a point in life where they didn't sin anymore, all right? You had actually arrived, perfectionism. There's a story, and I've found it a number of different places. I don't think it's apocryphal. I do think it's true. A story of Charles Spurgeon. 
he went to a conference and he preached and there was a person there and they preached a, a lesson on uh, perfectionism and basically saying what I just said, that you can reach a state where you're walking in step with spirit and you don't sin anymore. You have obtained in this life, in this flesh, actual perfection. And so somebody preached at this same conference as Spurgeon and they preached this kind of message. Well, Spurgeon didn't confront him head on, but what he did the next morning, they were staying in the same house. The guy sitting there having his breakfast, Spurgeon took a, a, a pitcher of milk, walked up behind him and poured it on his head. <laughs> and he did this to expose that you're not actually perfect. And apparently he got the response that he was hoping for. Spurgeon in another place, this was an issue he dealt with a number of times. Somebody asked him, what should I do if somebody says that they have been completely, absolutely perfected by Christ, they don't sin anymore? And he said, stomp on their toe. <laughs> just, just see, just see what happens. So we don't want to go that far either. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to toe the line here, what I think is biblical, of calling people to obey the Lord. When when Paul says, put on, put off, heart change, stop lying, stop stealing, he means it. So we shouldn't flatten out the imperatives to where they don't actually mean anything. They do. So the answer to your sin is stop it. Like, really, stop it. Don't do it anymore. But we also recognize that we are sinners, we are fallen people, and we look forward to the day when we don't sin anymore. And so repentance is a necessary part of this message. We don't want to give people permission to just live in sin in any way they want, because that's not biblical. But we also don't want people to misunderstand and think that we're demanding perfection. We're not. We're not at all. I told you the story before of a friend that I was serving at a previous church, and it was a friend from high school. I haven't seen him in years, uh, probably 15 years or so at that point. And he shows up one day. And we're catching up, and he says, hey, I'd love to just grab lunch one day. I said, oh, that'd be great. Um, would love to. And so we grab lunch, and he sits down across the table from me with tears in his eyes. And he had, had, a, he had made some decisions over the last 15 years that were not good decisions, and, and he, was, he was telling me a little bit about that. And he was owning that. And then with tears in his eyes, he said, do people at this church sin? And it was heartbreaking to know and to see that your impression is that everybody here has just got it all together. Can I just assure all of y'all that are sitting here and looking so nice here today, y'all ain't got it all together, all right? So you can just look around at your neighbor and you may think, I'm the only one here that's internally struggling or a mess. You're not, all right? Promise, you're not. And, you know, there's a certain appropriateness, I think, of conversations that we're going to get into at this, at this place, and you don't have to share it all with everybody every time, all right? I don't, I'm not saying that, but at the same time, I think there's plenty of room as Christians for us to just admit that we struggle, we battle, we have this flesh inside of us, and by God's grace, we're walking forward. So let's, let's work on this. Let's don't ignore the issue of sin or repentance, but let's also don't expect perfection out of people. Don't hear me say, excuse sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we deal with sin biblically through the process of repentance. All right, so the prophet of repentance. Let's move on. Let's move on to what he said and how this works. There's quotations from Isaiah, verse 4, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hills shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Familiar verses probably for many of you because of Handel's Messiah, which sets that to beautiful music. The imagery is striking. It's striking that this voice is in the wilderness. This, of course, becomes John the Baptist, the baptizer. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make the path straight, not curvy. The valleys brought up. The mountains brought down. And the imagery is of this smooth path that the Lord is able to walk down. This smooth trail. The imagery is really, really striking. I know here for us in Florida, we could probably relate more to the curvy path than we can the valleys and the mountains, right? We don't do a lot of that around here. In fact, none of that around here. But I'm sure most of you at some point in time, you've been up to the mountains. Our family had opportunity to go out west last summer. And walking a hiking trail at 7,000 feet is very different from walking around Hannah Park just down the street. Very different experience. And there were moments in time where I thought, this is absolutely beautiful, and I wish it were really flatter right now, because this is hard, walking. And so you get the idea, it's not a hard path, it's a smooth path. Prepare, get ready, repent of your sins, turn from your wickedness, turn from your injustice, and walk in a way that's consistent with what God wants from you. That's what he's calling on people to do. He gets more specific. He does this by confronting the fakes and then encouraging them to cultivate true fruit that's in keeping with repentance. Let's see verses seven through nine. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now he uses imagery here that's very powerful and striking. This is going to make some of y'all really uncomfortable. Just this, oh gosh, those faces are awesome. I love it. Sorry, I take way too much pleasure in watching the faces as I put that up. That's a cotton mouth. It's one of Florida's, uh, Florida's venomous snakes. Uh, it's a cotton mouth, and it is venomous. And Jesus is using this imagery. Some of y'all aren't going to be able to pay attention while I talk about that with that on the screen, are you? He's using this imagery to say, this is who you are. But I don't think he's just picking an image that's just kind of universally scary for everyone. I think there's actually a little bit more going on with that. I think what he's actually doing is he's going all the way back to Genesis. And he's saying, you guys are the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. And I think that's what he's doing. Jesus does this as well. Matthew 12, 34. He says, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers, he calls out their hypocrisy. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're inconsistent. You're hypocritical. Matthew 23, 33. Jesus again, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Calls out their hypocrisy again. Used in connection to hypocrisy. He's exposing them as frauds. You see, they're not baptism candidates, really, because they haven't turned from their sin. And so John's not willing to baptize them. They think somehow that going through the rite of baptism is somehow going to do something for them. That's not how it works. So while we're here, I just thought it'd be helpful on something here. This is how you identify a water moccasin. 
I just wanted to show you. So they have the Zorro mask right across the eyes, vertical pupil, and the bullseye pattern on the body. This is a young one, and they get much darker as they age. That was for free. <laughs> All right. Confronting of the fakes. Confronting of the fakes. This is Genesis 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is after Adam and Eve have sinned. This is the curse being delivered. He said to the serpent, I highlight that, I'll put enmity, strife, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So I think that these guys would have understood exactly what John and Jesus are saying when they reference this. These people knew their Old Testament, saying, you're on the wrong side of this. You're on the wrong side of history, as it were. He continues on, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So what do we do? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, you're leaning into what you consider to be your spiritual legacy in history. As we heard in testimonies again this morning, it's not growing up in a Christian family that makes you a Christian. That's not what does it. That's not how it works. John here, he cuts in front of their argument. He knows what they're going to say is, look at our spiritual legacy. Don't, John, don't you know who we are? He says, yeah, I know who you are. And God could take those rocks and raise up children for Abraham. Not impressed by your genealogy. Not impressed at all. There's no spiritual legacy to speak of here because you're not walking in obedience to the Lord. I worked for a company in college that sold phones. It was one of the precursors to what eventually became T-Mobile. And I worked with a lady, and she was not a Christian. She didn't claim to be a Christian, had no interest in spiritual things. In fact, one of her hobbies was making fun of me for my particular beliefs and how conservative I was on social issues and things like that. So that was a constant conversation. And so one day we get into a conversation, and she says this, which was really interesting into how she thought. She says, I know that people don't think I'm religious. Well, that's understatement. She says, but I just want you to know that my uncle was a Baptist pastor. Like, oh, oh. Well, you know, that and $5 might get you something at Starbucks. Like, that means zero. That's not what it's about. And I wasn't snarky at all with her, but we, it did lead to a good conversation about what does bring spiritual fruit about? What does it mean to actually be a Christian? It's not being able to identify that my parents were good people. It's not even going through baptism. These people come out, they want to go through baptism, sort of have this renewal rite. And John says, that's not how it works. You need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's not about your lineage. Verse 9, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, you guys are headed for judgment because you're not keeping fruit. You're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, let's be clear. He's not saying you have to do these things in order to be okay. He's saying you're exposing and expressing hearts that don't truly love the Lord, and your fruit is evident. So what does true repentance look like? And this will be what we look at next week, but I want to go ahead and mention it here. 
just to complete the thought. Verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They're sort of shocked by this response. What then shall we do? And he answers them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So if you have extra goods and resources, you're to share it. Extra money? If you have money, even. In fact, it doesn't say extra. It says if you have money, you are to share it. It says two tunics, but it just says money. You're to share, not be enamored by the things of the world. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. The tax collectors, they would take whatever they could get out of people and then they would pay their part and they'd pocket the difference. He says, don't do that. Well, what about the soldiers? Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. Don't use your position in order to exploit people and take from them. So what should we do? We should do much the same. I wanna go back to Isaiah 1 for just a moment here. Isaiah 1, and this is not a new problem, and John, is, in fact, is picking up on a very old prophetic tradition, and that is to call people for your profession to match the life that you're living. Isaiah 1, it's a book, really, at least the first 39 chapters, it's a lot of judgment that's coming in Isaiah chapter, uh, in, in the book of Isaiah, and then ultimately about the restoration that's gonna take place of Israel. Verse 11, this is the Lord speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Why are you bringing these things? Your heart is so far away, and yet you're coming, and you're checking the box, you're giving your money, you're giving your sacrifices, and you think that's all there is to this thing. I think we're in the same danger today. Play in church, come check the box, throw a little money in, do the thing, you get the thing. It's not how it works. The Lord wants our hearts. He continues on. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. When the Lord tells people to stop meeting and stop coming and stop gathering and stop making sacrifices, he had instructed them to do these things, but their hearts are so far away. What's the answer? Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Adding a spiritual experience to your life isn't what's going to fix it. What you need is true heart change. You need salvation through Christ, which yields the fruits of repentance, which we'll dig more into next week. There's an ethical and social component to this. How you treat others is evident of what's actually going on in your heart. You can't hide it. A tree is known by its fruits. If you have a tree that's in your yard and it's not producing fruit, you could take a, go to the store and you could buy a bushel of apples or whatever it is and you could attach them to the branches. You didn't fix the tree. Why is it not bearing fruit? It's either a very unhealthy tree or it's not the kind of tree you think it is. It may actually be a different type of tree and that's why it's not producing the fruit that you think it should produce. 
adding a spiritual experience to your life, like baptism through John even, is not what's going to do it. It's not going to do it here today either. What you need is heart transformation at the deepest level with the gospel of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we're grateful for a passage like this 